Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Signature Travel Network Summit in Austin, Texas. I'm pleased to be joined by Richard Fain, the chairman and CEO of Royal Caribbean. Richard, it's always a pleasure to see you, but especially at a time like this, when everybody is talking about a very healthy economy, uh, you guys have had a, a, a completely staggering year, last year and the year before, um, and the industry has, when you think about it. And, and, and at the same time, 24 new ships in 2019, not just yours, but everybody, t- right, and more coming on the horizon. You and I have talked about this before. You're still in your infancy. Um, you know, it's an amazing time because I think we, the industry really is coming of age. People are really beginning to realize um, what cruising offers, and cruising offers so much more than it used to. So we're adapting to what people want, um, the growth of of uh, multi-generational travel, uh, more and more first-timers, more and more people understanding what cruising's about. So it's been a great time for people understanding the industry. And on top of that, of course, the economy has been amazing, and it has shown just strength after strength. Is it sustainable? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, my background is I studied as an economist, and I believe a perfect that, person to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think an economist is the last person you want to answer that question. But um, uh, we're always taught 
business goes in cycles, economies move in cycles, and that people um, do better, and then you always have a recovery period, and then you that ends. But are we overheated? Well, you know, I, I, I've I've heard many people predict that. I've I know people who have successfully predicted the last uh, eighteen of the last two uh, recessions, <laughs> um, and so some point that they will be right. So far, we're not seeing signs of that. But you know, our industry is a long-term industry. We make investments on a long-term basis, and yes, we will have, we definitely will have at some stage downturns, and that will be just part of our cycle, but that is quickly followed by upturns again. And so we focus on the long-term, not the short-term. The one thing I've always noticed about you guys, and the wake-up call for me was, of course, 9-11, because as the travel industry itself suffered in the airline business and the hotel business, you guys were the only ones who could literally reposition your assets. And, and you moved, and at that time, I mean, I, I had to laugh. I mean, you were moving to ports in the United States that didn't even know they had ports, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, but that was how you, you could actually adjust. Well, I, and I think that is the, the thing that people underestimate about our industry is our ability to adapt to what's going on. And when people's tastes change or when political changes, we adapt and we, we can shift our assets because unlike most others, ours are literally uh, movable. Now... When I was uh, much younger, and you too, by the way, uh, during the days of the, the love boat, uh, the demographics were completely different about who was on. First of all, nobody was on cruise ships then. I mean, in terms of real numbers, right? The ships themselves were basically the size of the room we're sitting in. Uh, that's changed. But the demos have changed, too. Well, um, I, I think the real beauty of our industry is it has adapted as the, as the, trans, as the vacation habits of the consumer has changed. The, vac- the, tra- the consumer is, has raised their expectations of what they want from a cruise and what they want from a vacation, and we've adapted our ships and our itineraries to meet that different demand, and the result is we're getting a broader demographic. And what are they telling you that they want? Well, first of all, multi-generational travel is just changing the the pace of it. And and what I was going to say about that is that I go back to 2008 when we had the real economic crisis, and that's where I saw a huge jump in multi-generational travel. I called it like the last supper mentality where families would say, you know, if we don't go now, we're never going to go. Get everybody in the car and let's go, whether it's on a cruise ship or a hotel. And I'm seeing that again now. Uh, I think that's happening. But the other thing that's happening is that people – everywhere want choice. They don't want regimentation. And so the ships have evolved so that now you have lots and lots of choices of what to do and when to do it. No more first and second seatings than the old days. And, you know, whatever it is, the entertainment is is broader, different types. So if tonight I want to go to the comedy club, that's one thing. And and so given Well, you used to have a situation, not just you, but the industry, where you had to try to adjust your venue for the performance. Now... You basically build the venue for the performance. So the result is that what we can offer at sea is so much better than anything we ever used to be able to offer. We are now offering things that you won't even find on land. And so it's that ability to provide that kind of choice that so many people are doing. And that's why we're attracting more people. The other thing is, going back to the days 
when you were young and and <laughs> I was still in in uh, kindergarten. Thank you. <laughs> Couldn't resist that. You no, know, take a shot. Go ahead. Um, but um, in those days, you really had uh, very little choice of what you were going to do, and you had very little opportunity. And so people reacted accordingly. Now we've just broadened it, and people had a different view of cruising. So people were living with these old myths because people had been brought up thinking of transatlantic. Today, we have the millennials, and the millennials don't have those incorrect stereotypes. So we're off on a better starting point. And everybody's chasing the millennials. And everyone's... Well, they, fortunately for us, the millennials are chasing us. In what way? Well, the business that we are seeing, actually, everybody talks about baby boomers, and I am a baby boomer, and everybody talks about that. Okay, now you admit it. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you got me back. Okay. Um, everybody talks about them, but actually, our biggest growth by far is amongst the millennials. They are interested, and they are finding cruising offers what they're interested in. So they're not necessarily going to go on the seven-day Caribbean cruise. They want a, more of an expedition, or they want more of a, of a ground experience that you, that you wouldn't have been offering five years ago. Well, I think they're off, they're looking for everything. I we do see them on the we very much see them on the seven night, um, and we've also tried and I think we've been quite successful in transforming the three and four night cruising. Well, let's talk about that because I remember. Um, Somebody would say to me, I've never taken a cruise before, and you'd say to them, well, take the three-day cruise to Mexico out of Los Angeles or the, or the three-day cruise to the Bahamas out of, out of Florida. And, they, and I remember the very first time I did one of those on a ship called the Azure Seas, mm-hmm. which was the biggest, dumpiest, I mean, tub. It had a great history. It was originally the Calypso, and before that it was, it was another ship and, and so on and so on. It had a single smokestack that you could, you know, it was built as, as a Southern Cross back in 1954 to take Australian immigrants back from England. I mean, crazy stuff. But that was the ship they put on that route because it was the cheap one, right? Well, and so you had a, a, a horrible, vicious circle. Um, People didn't pay much because I'm just trying this. It's just a weekend. And um, so the cruise So the line, standards were lower. So the standards were lower. People said, well, if expectations were lower. Expectations lower and, and the cruises, the ships were less, et cetera. So what we're trying to do is, is turn that circle around and turn the vicious cycle into a virtuous one. And so we're we, putting newer ships on. We're putting newer ships on, uh, extraordinary entertainment on. We've recently opened a perfect day um, at Coco Cay. So we give an amazing um, destination to the cruise. And so now you're seeing that people are paying for an amazing experience. We're able to offer an even better experience. And now we've turned this around so that we're getting very good uh, alternatives for people who want to try our cruising for the first time. And then for the second time, it's, a, it's an easier upsell. It's an easier upsell, but of course, now it's so popular that it's no longer only for your first <laughs> time who, who don't want to take the risk on a longer cruise. I got it. Uh, everybody else out there is chasing the millennials. You know that. I mean, and, and they're not always getting them, right? They're, they're either not pricing it properly or they're not understanding it. But what are you doing? You mentioned entertainment. I mean, I take a look at your ships right now. I mean, Everybody's in this game of great one-upsmanship in terms of experience. I mean, what's the craziest new attraction for you on one of your ships? Um, you know, every day I, it's sort of a new experience, and every day I get – this is what's so wonderful about my job. It's always new. Um, but the entertainment, I, I think um, 
Well, if you want one specific thing, yeah. we recently um, have been experimenting with uh, uh, dro uh, drone swarms. So the drone technology has gotten so good that now instead of flying a drone, we're able to, in the, in the theater, over the audience or in the, over the stage, um, have a swarm of drones. <laughs> and it's, it's an amazing sight. And so we're able to ramp up our entertainment to an amazing degree. And again, this is what our, our shtick is very simple. We give people far more than they expect. We wow them with the experience, and they come back, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, if you look historically, going back to the to the late '80s, early '90s, uh, and there were things called commission caps, and and um, and there was a rumor that uh, uh, travel agents were dead. Well, a funny thing happened: the old school travel agents, the old mom and pops, the all-purpose travel agencies, the ones that would send your kid to college and you on a business trip and the family on vacation, they basically folded up. Uh, and if you look at the history of travel agencies, when you think, if you're going to be honest about it, they were really essentially a welfare state created by the airlines because they didn't have to pay their salaries. They didn't have to pay their their office space. They didn't have to do anything. They just put a, a biased computer on their desk and, and then waited for the phone to ring. Well, those are the guys that said goodbye because they weren't creative. They weren't proactive. They were just basically waiting for the phone to ring. Now, that's not every travel agent, of course, but we saw a lot of failures and consolidations as a result of that. Well, it's a brave new world, and travel agents aren't dead at all. They've been redefined. They're back. And there are organizations that deal with travel agencies, and one of them in particular is Signature, the Signature Travel Network. Um, and one of the reasons why we're here in Austin is to attend their meeting that basically you may never know their name, you may never have heard of Signature, uh, but they're intimately involved in the experience you get when you travel every time you deal with one of their agents. And joining me now, the president, chairman, CEO, chief bottle washer of Signature. Uh, he and I go back years before he was at Signature. Alex Sharp, how are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So Thanks now that I've here. completely butchered the definition of what you do, <laughs> tell me what you do. Well, what we do at Signature Travel Network is we are a cooperative, so we're not-for-profit, owned by our travel agencies, uh, so we have 200 travel agencies here in the U.S., independently owned, family owned, most of them, who are shareholders in our company. And why do they do that? Because we can aggregate their, their revenues, work with the suppliers to, to make sure they get the best deals, the, the greatest value adds, procure you know, the right kind of content for them, and then we help them with marketing, training, and technology. So your earlier comment about us not having a brand and them not knowing who we are is exactly right. We're all about, we just power it from behind. It's all about our independent travel agencies. Because it's their, their brand, brands. actually. Absolutely. And in their local markets, their brand is what matters, right? So we're very lightly powered by, you know, Signature Travel Network, but we do a lot of great work on their behalf. And you see the trends happening before anybody because you're, you're directly in that marketplace. Oh, no doubt. I mean, we're, we're aggregating $8 billion in travel 
uh, spend annually. So, you know, we can really read the tea leaves and see what's going on, see what's working, what's not, what are the new destinations, and it gives us some great insight to share with our partners and understand how do we find the right product for, for our members. But, Alex, there's more, I think, than just what are the new destinations, and we'll talk about that later in the show. It's actually how do you get there, and and how are you going to go, and, and, you know, what do you actually expect to accomplish or, more, more importantly, experience when you get there? Oh, there's, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about travel agents, and, right. and, and certainly there were a number of those when the airlines changed their deals that, that, that just folded up and went home. Well, you know, when I did a story once for Good Morning America that Asta tried to get me fired uh, from ABC because what we did, we wanted to talk about the biased computers. And we wanted to talk about the fact that I wasn't really getting the service I wanted when I called the travel agent. And we called uh, about 30 different travel agencies, ranging from the old Aspister Foster to American Express to Mom and Pops and College Town, and asked them the same four questions. Could you give me the lowest fare, lowest airfare between the following four city pairs? Not one of them did it because they gave me the lowest fare on Sabre or the lowest fare on Apollo or the other one I keep forgetting. Um, uh, because that's the computer they had on their desk. And when we went and talked about that on the air, all hell broke loose with Asta because they thought I was like attacking travel agents. No, I was attacking the relationship that wasn't serving the customer. You and I both know those days are over. They are, and those were, and that's why I we've we've really moved on from agent and to Asta advisor. And Asta had to had to adjust as well. They did as well yeah. because an agent is someone who who works for a supplier who's just transacting, right. and an advisor is someone who, like you were just in, uh, talking about, is identifying what's the best way to get there, what's the best supplier, what does the customer really want, need to experience while they're there, and how do I craft something that makes sense for them. With this robust economy that we seem to be seeing, with people spending more than they've ever spent on travel, every plane being full, cruise lines introducing 24 new cruise ships this year, they're being full. What are you seeing? Well, it's exciting, first and foremost. On the surface, it's exciting. Oh, absolutely. And I think even as we dig in, it's it's exciting because what we're hearing from our partners is they're trying to create more and more different experiences. They're understanding that it's not one size fits all, it's one size fits one. And so they're really having to dig deep to figure out how we can create these experiences for the customers that are different than their neighbors or what their parents did and everything else. So it's, it's put a lot of pressure on us, but it's also put a lot of value into the equation in terms of what an advisor can bring because there's so much information. Now, we were just talking to Richard Fain right before you, who's the chairman of Royal Caribbean. They're having one of their best years ever, and and they have the biggest ships. I mean, you would think, you know, their challenge is, how do you fill 6,000 cabins? Guess what? They're filling them. They are. And they're doing it in a a myriad of different ways. And they're a great example, right, through innovation and really revolution in terms of what they're bringing to their ships, the destinations they're doing. I'm sure he talked about the perfect day at Coco Cay and all the rest of it. So there's lots there. But in other destinations, right, if you talk to uh, an advisor about Italy, right, what consumers are hearing is overcrowding in Venice. What they want to hear is where else do we go? Do we go to the Dolomites? Do we go to Tuscany? Where can we go and get a truly authentic experience without, you know, whitewater rafting through the the crowds? And by the way, this is not about being an elitist. It's about just being practical. Oh, for sure. I mean, people's, their time is so valuable. The the experiences they have, you know, travel, vacation has become a a, a must-have, not a like-to-have, right? And that's been a wonderful transformation probably since 9-11 that we've seen, where people really put this before other luxury goods, before other luxuries in life. But we, the time is so valuable. Ask the car manufacturers how they're doing these days, right? People are saying, I don't need a car, but I want to go here. I need experiences. But the experiences have to be 
worthwhile. They have to be valuable. And they don't have the time and energy. Heck, you work a, a, long, a long week, right? I work a long week. I don't have the time and energy to put into really crafting a vacation that's going to maximize every minute. And maximizing every minute might be laying on the beach for a couple of days, but really ensuring that I have the right program put together. You are not laying on the beach for a couple of days. You will lay on the beach for 20 minutes, then you'll take hostages because you want I know you. You're, you. That's not you. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I could lay on the beach with my iPhone and answer some emails and yeah, think about exactly. the next things. But for some people, that's very, very important. If they're heavily sedated. <laughs> but, so, but I get the point. Yeah. It's a... Uh, you know, but it's a, it's a brave new world. The world's getting larger in many ways, right? There's more and more destinations. People want to uh, experience these things, but they're not quite sure how. You know, they hear about Myanmar. They hear about Cambodia. They hear about these places. But there's so much information out there that they need someone to really understand it, decipher it, and put it together with what's going to fit for that lifestyle budget and all the rest of it. And plus, we're dealing with new technology that allows ultra-long-haul flights that are nonstop, meaning, you know, Qantas is working on right now a nonstop from Sydney to New York, which will be 21 hours, yeah. nonstop. It's amazing. See, I look forward to those flights because I have so much work. We're so busy. I'm just like I you. Think, I think, okay, the phone won't ring. Of course, I can get email now, yeah, which, which, which is, is, is good for me, but maybe not good for everyone. And uh, and it's making it all so much you know, more we, accessible. We get so, see, we're so spoiled because I get on a plane now that doesn't have Wi-Fi. I'm an unruly passenger. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. It's just I like to be connected. Well, but, you... you You've got a, 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 a steel tube flying through the air, and, and we're like, why isn't the Wi-Fi faster? I that's the, right? that's I can't even C, figure that out. That was a Louis C.K. routine. <laughs> absolutely. And he was absolutely right. He busted me. He busted everybody. But you know what we get? We, we love our connectivity, right? It's, it's critical. And you look at the investment well, that look suppliers at what, are making. Look, Royal Caribbean, as much as they've spent money on their ships and all the attractions and the shows and, and, the, and, the, envir- and, and the, the, the gastronomic stuff, you know what sells that ship to me? Boom. The fastest Wi-Fi at sea. Absolutely. Yeah, it opens it up. I mean, my kids, you know, I grew up in the luxury cruise space and my kids would rather go on Royal Caribbean because they can stay connected the entire time. I'm a waterways, right? A great river cruise line uh, was was talking today and Gary Murphy, their owner, said we spend more on Wi-Fi than we do on fuel. Yeah, more on Wi-Fi than on fuel. And it's that important. And by the way, speaking of experience, if you look at Viking, they did something. I mean, when you think about it, brilliant a couple of years ago, they not only offered free Wi-Fi to their passengers, they offered free Wi-Fi to their crew. Absolutely, and you know what? That retain that crew is happy now. Crew is thrilled. When when uh, when Royal Caribbean announced Boom, I was in Germany in one of the shipyards, and uh, and they delivered a pallet of of tablets, and I thought, geez, we're going to get a nice present. And they gave them to all the crew members because they said if the crew can Skype home, if they can FaceTime home, if they can watch movies, they're going to be happier. They'll serve your customers better. And I thought, yeah, but how the heck are they ever going to With get that everyone broadband, online? Right, sure. And and their promise was everyone can be streaming at the same time, and you're not going to lose any any connectivity, which is just amazing. So much me. streaming, the ship glows in the dark, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, no, it's, so. oh, I'm sorry. But the bottom line is, you have to figure out what those touch points are to be able to satisfy your customers. Oh, for sure. And what's important to one is not to another. So this isn't, as I said before, it's not a one-size-fits-all. How do you really dig in and get to know your customer so you understand what type of hotels, what are they looking for, what types of experiences do they want, and how do we craft The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Joining me now is someone I've known for many, many years. 
And if you really want to get a definition of travel, and you want to dig down even deeper and get a definition of what luxury travel is, which, by the way, a definition that changes almost by the week, depending on who you're talking to, you want to talk to Ignacio Maza, who's the executive vice president at the Signature Travel Network. Ignacio, great to see you. Uh, with that introduction, I'm always confused because people are chasing demographics, they're chasing spend, they're chasing destinations, everybody's trying to one-up everybody else, and yet I understand why, because more and more people are traveling and they're spending more money. That's right. I think the definition of uh, what luxury travel is has changed more in the last 15 or so years than it has in the previous 100. Once upon a time, you know exactly what luxury travel was. It was a suite. It was perhaps a QE2. It was the Concorde. It was something very specific, and you were either in... And, and you could and you could picture it and define it. Correct. Now, luxury is much more uh, flexible concept because it means something different to every single person. So the first thing that... Which makes your job tougher. Much. More tough. Much tougher. Agreed. Because it really is up to each individual. Every person desi designs and, and, and defines what luxury means to them. So say that you are an, an avid outdoorsman, for you to reach the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro is the ultimate, even though you're going to eat miserable food, you're going <laughs> to feel miserable, you're going to sleep in a little cot in a tent in the middle of nowhere, but on day five, you will be on the highest mountain in Africa, and that will be unforgettable. And be sure to tell me how you enjoy that, because I'm not going. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm going, but I did make it to a mountain that is 18,000 feet. Which, high way, in Chile. which one? El Toco. Oh, yeah, is I know it. Volcano near Explorer. How long, how long did it take you? One day. Less than one day. One, one morning. 18,000 feet, you did it in one day? Well, but you start, remember that you start at base camp, it's about 12,000 ah, okay. feet, and then I you go it. up from there, because okay. you already are in the Atacama Desert, you're already at 9,000. And by the way, for those people who don't know the Atacama, it's the driest desert in the world. Chile is one of my favorite countries, simply because it's this little string bean of a country has everything. It's got the driest desert in the world in the north, it's got the Lake District out of Santiago, it's got the most beautiful coastline with these little towns called La Serena on the Pacific, and then you go, of course, then you got Patagonia, and the fjords, and then all the way down to Antarctic. So. And the other thing with the Atacama Desert, it is it is the highest uh, desert in the world. Yeah. In addition to the driest, it is also <laughs> the highest. But you said something to me the other day that I want to bring up, and so many people would like to define travel as being transformative, and you said, uh-uh. I agree. I, I am very rattled by this word transformative because Personally, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, if you spend the night in Chicago, you're not going to be transformed. You may have a good time. You may enjoy it. You may have a great pizza or a great restaurant or what have you, but it's not going to change your life. What travel can do is enrich you. And if you spend one night in Chicago, as I have many times, you can be enriched no matter where you go. Well, now that you mentioned Chicago, it is America's best, most underrated big city. Agreed. Right up there with Detroit. You know what? You're right. Detroit is coming back. The biggest mistake I made was six years ago not buying something in Detroit because nobody wanted to go. I know. I agree. And in fact, today, our network just released its list of where to go in 2020. On that list is Detroit. You're the only ones doing it. And you know what? You're ahead of the game because you're absolutely right. You can stay at the Shinola Hotel, which is absolutely fantastic. And there is the Cranbrook School. I'm going to tell you why I'm not going to stay at the Shinola Hotel because I'll end up buying more Shinola watches. Well, you I'll, buy, I'll buy more Shinola notebooks. These guys are brilliant. Keep me out of their Shinola 
stores. I, <laughs> I came back with Shinola footballs and baseball bats. It, it's crazy. The watch. You need the watch, Peter. I have the watch. Oh, okay. Good. I have the watch of the little green face. I'm nuts about these guys. Okay. Yeah. Well, but, so they, but they deserve a big kudo because they are one of the businesses that's turning Detroit around. I agree wholeheartedly, and they deserve a lot of credit. And what I love the most, it's all made in America. It is. Everything. So they're putting people to, to work in Detroit. Agreed. How about that? All right. So what else is on the list? You mentioned you, you surprised me. I, I'll take it, though, with Detroit. What else? Uh, other places to go in 2020, I think Namibia is one place that I'm very high on. It is uh, in southwest Africa. It's about yep. roughly the size of Texas. And this is a very, very different experience because it is not lush and it's not the Okavango and you, Delta. And, and you can safari there. You can safari. And you can also see the almost amazing dunes the on, highest, on the Skeleton Coast. The highest in the world, up to 1,000 feet. Imagine a sand dune, the height of the Empire State Building. And there you are staying in a beautiful lodge like and beyond Sosuvlai that has been completely renovated and reopening this fall or other places as well. And I've got and I've got one for you. You use Namibia as a jumping off spot for a place I know you haven't been. Which is? The island of St. Helena. That's right. I have not been, but I would love to go. And I'm telling we did it, we did the radio show from there. And you fly from Johannesburg to Windhoek in Namibia, and then you go out in the middle of the South Atlantic for at the extended range of that plane and land on a runway you'll always remember because it's one of the craziest landings in the world, and they only have one, this airport only has one flight a week. No, they actually have a flight now from South Africa. There is service that's from the, South Africa. That's, that's the one. You get on in Johannesburg, you stop in Windhoek, and you go, that's the plane. Okay, all right. Yeah. Well, there you are. And I'm telling you, you got to do it. Okay, but I will. if you're going to do it, you get to do Namibia at the same time. It's a twofer. I agree. Okay, keep going. Okay, another place that I'm very big on is Slovenia. It's a, a small country about the size of New Jersey, right below Austria, right next to Italy. And people don't realize it's 50% the cost of, say, Tuscany or Austria or other places that are priced in euro. And you have phenomenal places to stay, lots to see and do. And a lot let's of not forget Lake Bled. And Lake Bled and the food. And the food. And by the way, ha- I, 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 I kid you not. Half the people in Slovenia are fanatic beekeepers. They have the best honey. I it's, went. Yeah, it's I unbelievable. Went, I went and met the beekeeper in the yeah. Julian Alps. It's unbelievable. And, and lots of things to see and do. And people don't realize that there's a, a lady chef. Her name is uh, Anna Roche. And she is now considered one of the top chefs in the world. Her restaurant is the hardest table to get in all of Slovenia. But we can get it for you. And the other good thing is you're 30 minutes from Trieste and an hour from Venice. Actually, two hours from Venice. Depending on how fast you drive, it's Italy. Well, Peter, if you're driving, I'm not going. (laughs) Okay, next on the list, quick. Okay, next on the list would be Morocco. Uh, We're very big on Morocco. The country has had enormous uh, investment in infrastructure and hotels. There's a new high-speed rail between Casablanca and Tangiers. There's great places to stay. There's beautiful new beachside resorts, not only on the Atlantic, but on the Mediterranean in a place called Tamuda Bay. There's a beautiful banyan tree. And there is lots to see and do in Morocco. It's beautiful. It's exotic. It's got great shopping and dining. I couldn't agree more. And And lots to do. And if you're going to go to Tangiers, then take one of the shortest flights in the world to Gibraltar. Yes, and fly, and fly from New York, and it's six and a half hours, and boom, you're there. It's great. Agreed. I mean, and what about the Azores? I'm very big on the Azores. You missed my where to go in 2019 because the Azores was at Ah, that so, well, that's what we're See, talking about. See, Peter, right now. I'm one step ahead of you. <laughs> Always. Um, <laughs> another, no, hardly. Another uh, place that I'm very big on is Guyana in South America. A lot of people haven't heard of it. It is in the northern part of South America, right next to Suriname, and it is probably one of the last uh, tracks of the Amazon uh, jungle that is pristine and the highest single drop waterfall in the world. Wow, you filled up my calendar. Okay, Peter. Riding along in my automobile. 
my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest, a regular on our show, usually by phone from some distant remote location, um, but now I have him actually in the studio with me. Uh, from the Boyd Aviation Group, the venerable, legendary Mike Boyd. <laughs> Thank you very much. Did you like that introduction? That's a great intro. I mean, it's wonderful. Recently in Las Vegas at your annual aviation forecast, uh, I was in the audience and listening to you, and you came up with a number that was pretty staggering about the airport infrastructure in China and about the number of passengers that will be traveling from China and within China. Uh, and let's start with just the airport structure. I mean, the Shanghai Airport alone I mean, the numbers that you were coming up with in terms of their real estate and their operations and where they're going to start flying was staggering. They're adding 83 gates in a lump. We, we have very few airports in America that have 83 gates. And those and are just the gates they're adding. That's just what they're adding to the existing Pudong Airport. So it gives you an idea of the kind of growth. I mean, our, our forecast shows in 2020, China's airports, and they only have about 210 of them, will handle 1.4 billion passengers. That's in and out. 1.4 yeah. billion. And where are they flying? Most are domestic. There's a big chunk going international. The challenge with international travel out of China to the U.S., China has no connecting hubs to speak of. We do. But if someone in Hefei, China, wants to go to anywhere in, 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 the, in the States, they've got to have a, a dual connection to some place to get a nonstop. And three big airlines don't have hubs. So you've got to do a multi-stop trip to get to New York. Are you surprised by that, that a country that big with that, that number of people hasn't figured out hubs? Well, well let's, let's keep in mind, they only started this process 40 years ago. Back so in they're late to the game, right? They're late to the game. And keep in mind, Montana has more than half as many airports as all of China. So China only has like 200 and some airports. Now they're building them. Yeah. And the ones they've built, they suddenly explode. There's one in Xinjiang they built uh, about 2012, and they went from zero passengers to 250,000 passengers today. It's huge. And, it's, and, and look, it's growing exponentially. Exponentially, and, there's, and when you look at the challenges, you can't interline in China. For example, if you're going to fly from A to B, make a connection to another carrier. you got to get your bags. you got to get your bag, check in again. They're trying to implement it now, but that's a problem. And then the fact that, you know, there's right now today we're carrying, they're carrying, they're generating about 15% of the total traffic that would come to the U.S. if they had a more open system that they're developing. It's, it's incredible. We're talking... Right now, it's down 6% this year, but you're looking at 3 million people. It could be more like about 30 million people when it opens up. And the Chinese, the number of Chinese passengers is going to exceed American passengers now. Yes. We, we, our, our forecast shows by roughly October of 2021, uh, the government in Beijing can open up the bubbly and start celebrating because they will be carrying more passengers. Not more emplanements, but more passengers will be generated than the U.S., so what are, the, what are the challenges for American passengers with this knowledge? Well, it's the same thing for an American passenger. Getting around China can be a problem sometimes. 
and, and, and China, like America, hasn't really opened itself up as well as it could to, to U.S. Better, they've done a better job opening up to U.S. customers than we have to Chinese customers. But still, if you want to take a trip, let's just say from Zhengzhou to Hefei, it's going to be a hard thing if you don't speak Mandarin. Right. Now, in this country, we haven't seen a new airport in more than 25 years. That was Denver, right? Right. Now, we are fixing the Salt Lake Airport. We are improving LaGuardia. I mean, there's, there's money being put into the infrastructure. But my prediction is, at the end of the day, in about a year and a half to two years, when they reopen the brand new LaGuardia, you'll have a brand new, gleaming, brilliant, congested airport. Uh, guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. It's in New York. But let's, let's keep in mind, th- there are differences here that I, I, I brought up you know, a, a while back. America has over 4,000 airports. And every one of those airports is a future node of communication as we get more drones and new logistics and all that. So we're kind of ahead of the game. Yes, Beijing has a new airport. Uh, Turkey has a new airport in Istanbul. We've got Orland, Wyoming. And that is not an inconsequential airport because it opens up a whole section of our country. China would love to have our airport system. Well, let's talk about, (laughs) you can talk about Wyoming. But the bottom line is, we're not opening up new airports in this country in terms of huge airports. We don't have the real estate. Correct. And even if we did, we're talking 10 years from now, right? So what does that do in constraining U.S. airports, uh, U.S. airlines in terms of their expansion? Well, you know, it, it, it depends on where people want to go. Keep in mind, the average aircraft size is growing. You know, if from roughly 2007 to now, you know, there's, there's about 12% fewer flights in the sky. Because they've got more seats in the air. More seats. And it's not just bigger airplanes, it's... More seats on every airplane. But that's one way they're, they're dealing with it. I mean, there, there, there are no small airplanes coming out of manufacturers today. The smallest thing in t- five years is the A220. Seven, the A220, and that's 100 seats. Right. There's nothing smaller than that. The old 54-seaters are gone. They're all gone because they're, they're not economic. And keep in mind, the 50-seat jets we've had, we only had them because the taxpayers in Brazil— you know, got shafted with a with a privatization. Same thing with the people up in Canada. So the, with Embraer in Canada, with Embraer yeah. in Canada. So the costs of developing that airplane were never paid for by by the companies involved. So that's why we have it. But right now, today, we do have we see a system happening. For example, Boston. We see Providence becoming another terminal for Boston. Well, Providence has always been my secret Boston airport. It, it, see, you've discovered it. Yeah. It, we, well, I'll give you an example. We did an analysis for them. Uh, a Chinese airline that wants to fly to Boston could save about $400,000 a year flying into Providence rather than flying into Boston Logan. That's how much the difference in cost is. Wow. Now, speaking of uh, different locations, let's talk about aircraft type. The A380, it's going to go away. Well, eventually it will. I mean, it's not, it, It's going to stop. Uh, the manufacturer, will, the last one will come off the factory line in 2021. And then they'll start to get retired. The problem with it is, unlike some other airplanes, the next time you see an A380 after it's retired will be a Budweiser display. Nobody will take them. Why? They're just too big. For the same reason no one bought a lot of them. They're just too big. So what do you do with Emirates when, they, when they're the largest single operator of, the, of that particular aircraft? They've got so many planes at Emirates. They're actually flying a, a, an Emirate plane right now from Dubai to Oman. It's a 40-minute flight. That was not what that plane was designed to do. No, no it wasn't. And that design uh, airplane, for example, take a look at New York, London. That's a wrong route. These airplanes shine after 5,000 miles. Anything shorter than that, they just don't have the economics. But a, a company like Emirates, they'll have theirs for the next 15, 20 years. 
Because they bought in. Because they bought in and they can operate them and they got routes they can operate them on. There just weren't that many Emirates Airlines out there in the world to buy enough of them. And we're probably not, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a question I already know you know the answer to, but i got to ask it anyway. We're probably not going to see in our lifetime any more four-engine planes. There's no need for it. We used to have four engines because, A, they, they weren't powerful enough without four. And second of all, there was a the fear that if one goes, we're going to go down. We have two-engine airplanes flying as much as four hours away from a, an airport, and everything's been safe. So the, the four-engine planes are gone. You know, well, 747s are gone. Well, they're uh, going. Well, in the U.S., certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Airbus A340s, which had four engines, gone. And, of course, the earlier generation, they're all either carrying cargo or they've been scrapped. And the biggest anachronism of all, of course, is Air Force One because under federal law, no U.S. president can fly on anything less than a four-engine plane that's built in America. That only leaves the Boeing 747, so they're leaving that production line open long enough to finish two of those planes and... Uh, and then after that, I don't think they're going to build them anymore. Well, you know, there, there is some cargo demand for them. The 747-8 has a very slow cargo demand. Yeah. So you're looking at th- two or three years. But as far as passengers go, no. And the A380, I'm, I still think they're going to be a cargo plane. Uh, you know, uh, UPS tried to order as a cargo plane, and they decided it was too big. Because even for them, even for them, and FedEx too, and it take yeah, because it takes time to unload and load an airplane and turn it around. You know, this is you know my father's company flew cargo in in Vietnam, and they found out that larger airplanes did not work; small ones did. And so, if you want to go see an A three eighty outside of the Emirates in the next two or three years, go to a desert near you. A, well, or a, or a Budweiser display, one or the other. <laughs> You're hung up on Budweiser, aren't you? It's big, 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 you know. Does that come with the Clydesdales? With the Clydesdales, yeah, absolutely, you know. It's it's cat food. Let it go. No, I actually, (laughs) but I actually like flying the A380. I I, I enjoy it. Yeah, everybody, I've never met anybody who hasn't liked it. It's a quiet airplane. It's a very comfortable airplane. It's big. But so what? I'm sure the the Pan Am Clippers that went across the uh, Pacific before World War II were very comfortable, too. Right. But they just didn't add up in terms of the economics. No, they didn't. They made five of them, too. That was the end of it. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining me now, he's the vice president of sales, but he's really the co-owner of one of the fastest growing segments in the cruise industry, which of course is river cruising, Amma Waterways, and his name is Gary Murphy. How are you, Gary? Oh, very well, thanks, Peter. Let's talk about, you know, I, I always like to talk about a, a certain barometers of the economy, and of course, whenever you do that, you're always talking about travel. You know, there's a recent survey done by Allianz, the insurance company, and they asked Americans, A, number one, well, number one, will you be taking a vacation this year? And then if they said yes, they'd ask them what they would do. And then if they said no, they'd ask them why. This was a year, to me, which is somewhat interesting, this statistic, 44% of the Americans surveyed in this survey said they weren't going to take a vacation this year because they didn't think they had the money. Now, for me, everywhere I look, every plane is full. Your boats are full. Yes. I mean, so are we missing something here? Are people worried because it's an election year or Brexit? I mean, every election year, we, as we go into election year, it seems the market seems to soften. 
And I could talk to a dozen people. I could get a dozen different answers on why it softens. I just think people always get a little nervous. Like, where is the country going? Where, well, we see what happened with where, Brexit. Yeah, where see. the economy is going. Yeah. But Peter, know what I also look at? I look at the airport parking lots. If I can easily find parking spaces, <laughs> I'm, I get concerned. But um, always going into election year, it seems to be the market seems to soften. And at Alma Waterways, we then try to front load as much as we can for 2020. So what does that mean? That means we're coming out with the best offers now. We're not going to have better offers later on. We've got to come out with the best offers now, get as much business is on the books. Is that a change in your model? It isn't a change in our model, but we're becoming more, we're a little more aggressive on it for 2020 because we have those same concerns. Right now, 2020 is selling, selling very, very well. But historically, we can go back and look at the booking patterns, and as we move through the year, it does soften. You know, it's interesting because at the same time, everybody's adding capacity, right? We saw some of your competitors like, you know, christening 10 boats at a time right uh, that was viking right right you've had some really nice boats come out well thank you no so, uh, we, and we broadcast from one in amsterdam yes. during uh, during virtuoso last year uh what's changed in terms of the design of the ships because in the old days let's be honest uh, and i want to say the old days i'm going back 15 20 years right. ago you know the food on the on the river cruises was not great it was sort of like guess the age of the mystery hot dog and the rotisserie the cabins were like boxes Right. There wasn't the amenities were not really there. The age demographics were, were, were old and getting older. Yes. Right. What have you done to address all of that? Well, in the United States, the River Cruise market really launched around 2000. Right. When you, you had Viking. Command. I said 20 years you, ago. Yeah, yeah. And you had uh, Uni World. In the, right. But what they were doing is they were taking European ships and introducing them into the U.S. market. In Europe. In Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But what we've done now, what's progressed is. We started building ships specifically for the U.S. market, and U.S. market likes larger cabins. We'd build um, the kitchens so they could prepare better food. And then what changed again was in 2009, the European body that controls navigation on the rivers allowed us to go from 110 meters in length, which is around 360 feet, to 135 meters, which is 440 feet. And, but now you're, you're really pushing the opposite. Well, okay, so that's the length. Yeah. And that's when everyone introduced these longer vessels. And with that, we made bigger cabins. And we just added amenities and competition drives that we all have to improve the product. And by the way, people don't realize, you know, you're thinking about crossing a, body, a large body of water. You, you'd have any length of the ship you want. You're in a river. It has to fit in the lock. It has to fit in the lock. But the, the length of the ship is determined by the curves in the river, the bends in the river. And there's a, a governing body that says, okay, at 135 meters or 460 feet long, or excuse me, 440 feet long, you can navigate well. The locks determine the width, when you're correct on that. But as you know, we came out with a new one this year that won't fit through a, the mine Danube Canal because she, her hips are a little too wide. But you knew that going in. We knew that going so in. So where do you place that ship? The Ama Magna uh, is twice the, the size of any other river ship vessel, we only added like eight more cabins. So we have suites up to 710 square feet. The ship lives on the Danube. We can go from Vienna Vils to from Budapest. Well, Vilsolfen, very near um, as you approach Regensburg. We, we can go to Vilsolfen, and we can go all the way down to where Bucharest is on going down towards the Black Sea. So we can do a, two seven-night cruises or a 14-night cruise on this beautiful ship, the Alma Magna. All right, so now i got to give you the devil's advocate question. With the growth in the number of ships, mm -hmm. you haven't really had a growth, I mean, radically in the number of places you can dock them. 
And so a lot of times if you're on a, on a river cruise, in order to get back to your ship at the end of the day, you're literally going across six or seven ships docked together. Well, the most will be three, okay. right? The most will be three. Um, and if you look at our itineraries now and our itineraries of our competitors, we add, are adding on additional cities. I mean, we're, we're going to grind this year. Um, okay, explain. We have to include Vienna. We have to include Budapest. Um, Pronounced correctly, by the way. I dated a Hungarian girl for a while. <laughs> um, so you have those iconic cities. But people often come away from a river cruise enjoying the Würzburgs, the, the, the Dernsteins, the Regensburg, these, the less popular um, in knowledge maybe in the U.S. market, but more popular as far as a visit to these little towns. Well, they're more authentic. Yes. But to, draw, to make the sale, you, you, have, you have to, to throw have, in the stars. You have to throw in the stars. And so we're adding more and more of the secondary cities, but keeping the iconic ones. What would you say is the, your most surprising new port? Well, we run tulip time cruises in the spring, and they're very, very popular. Um, you're doing Belgium. You're doing the Netherlands. And so what we decided this year, Peter, and it's done very, very well, and sometimes the obvious isn't obvious until you do it, we now do that itinerary through the next year we're doing it right through the summer. So you can go and visit Belgium and the Netherlands outside of spring, and it's selling very, very well. Why we didn't do this earlier, I don't know, but so be it. I tend to be a contrarian traveler. I mm -hmm. love the off-season. I think it's okay to be in Alaska in the winter and Palm Beach and Palm Springs in the summer if you do it right. Um, first of all, you're not standing in any lines. You yes. get better service. Better airfares. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what have you done to – is there a market for you guys out of season? We cruise from the second week of March right until like the 4th of January. We probably have the longest season of any river cruise line. We do it for many reasons. The contrarian traveler like yourself. It's great to go to these little towns. You know what? I mean, I'm not yeah. on – I'm not – with all due respect, right. I'm not on your boat to get a suntan. No, and a lot of times people are coming from sunny destinations, from Southern California or Florida, and they don't mind going on and putting some winter clothes on and enjoying the seasonality that right, it offers. Right, But there's a second point we do it. Our crew, which, which makes who we are, if you stop sailing, let's say at the end of October, and you start up in April, well, like where, a lot of our competitors do, where, where you they lose go? your crew. Exactly. So we keep it going as long as we can for two reasons to keep the market going, keep the sales going, but also to keep the crew happy on board. It's important. It is. Have you seen your age demos come down? Oh, yes. I mean, they, it's my demographic now. I'm, I'm just getting older. Um, it broke 60. But what's, what's really driving It came in that, under 60. Uh, yeah, it came in under 60, is that we're getting the multi-generation family. We're getting the 20-something with the 50-something parents or the 60-something parents with the 80-something grandparents. We get, river cruising is perfect for that market because with Alma Waterways, we'll have five different excursions in a port. So maybe the grandmother does pretzel making. The um, parents, I'll do, I'll do pretzel eating. Yes, yeah. the parents will go on a guided walking program, and the kids will take a bike tour, a hike tour, and they all come together. Now, when I say kids, they're not children. They're late teens, early 20s. Sure. And then, so you don't have anyone organizing the day, so it's great for multi-generation families. We have interconnecting cabins, and people think, oh, those for the children? I, honestly, it's not. It's usually for the single grandparent to keep an eye on them in the room next door, a cabin next door. We were just talking about 
in uncertain political economic yes. times. I saw this. I call it the, the last supper mentality. Uh, I saw it in 2008, 2009. I was in Paris. I mean, during the, top, the, the height of the bad economic times, every hotel was full and full with Americans. And so I'd go in the lobby and I'd say, I, I, I know why you're here. You want to come to Paris, right? Because it's on everybody's list. Why now? And without exception, they said, the, everybody gave me the exact same answer. We felt if we didn't come now, it would never happen. It was sort of like this desperate last-ditch attempt that we got to go see the Mona Lisa. You know, it's like, right? And, of course, they weren't going as solo travelers. They were bringing the whole family. Right. Because, if, you know, like, if we're going down in flames, let's go down in flames with the whole family. And, and I'm seeing that now all over, across the board. Well, there is uncertainty out there. Yeah. You know, no, none of us know what's, what tomorrow may bring. Right. So, thankfully, people are traveling, and they're traveling with people they care about. And because they want to experience these destinations. Together. I mean, uncertainty driving multi-generational yes. travel. Yes. I mean, I, I mentioned my mom is going, who's 90, and I think she, there's 30-something, 40 people going along with her. Most of my cousins in, from Ireland, um, but they did this from five or six years ago, and they thought that was the once-in-a-lifetime. They had so much fun, they're going to repeat it now. And my mom is not very mobile, but a river cruising is perfect for her because often she'll just stay very close to the ship while all the cousins and aunts and uncles will go out and do the excursions and she'll be on there with her aunts her sisters they're also elderly and they'll just hold court and let's listen to all the stories when everyone comes back together for the meals of what they did that day you know you talked earlier about what you did to improve the the, the design of the ship right. the size of the ship what can't you do what did you try to do that we, you said you know what this is just not going to work one of the challenges with river cruising is due to the constraints of what how big you can build is is storage capacity so we we have to design the vessel in a way to allow us to store as much as we need to operate. Now, what we do is we have fresh produce brought to the ship daily, fresh um, fish brought to the ship daily, and it would just be more comfortable, Peter. I'm talking very in-house here. Of course, here, I got you. Is just that additional storage capacity. You know, that's, that's one thing. The chefs never have enough space. They well, always Every chef will tell you that, right. But the thing is, it's great to source everything locally because you, now you're immersing yourself in their culture, too. And they appreciate you coming to the village. I mean, when River, Cruise, River Cruising first launched, people would, would um, supply the vessel at the first port and, and sail along. And that would be it. And that would be it. Now, because, again, the demands of culinary, uh, the, to, to improve the culinary experience, we source locally. And then the town appreciates you because you're working with the local fishmonger. You're working with the local butcher. And the money stays in the community. And the money stays in the community. So along those lines, there are some surprise menu items every day. Well, you know what? Okay. What always amazes me is when someone says, oh, and we go in with the chef to the local market and we pick out what we're going to have for that dinner. Well, you think about it. If we're feeding 160 people, we can't depend that day going into the local market. We have to work with them. I know it sounds very sexy and everything else, but... You know, when the white you'll, you'll, asparagus yeah, is out, yeah. we're going to have white asparagus, and that's what people appreciate. So we, we do adapt to the seasonality. And, of course, that allows you to have much more of a variety on the menu in terms of cheeses, wines, right? You're not just stocking a wine cellar once. Oh, no. We have uh, different wines every evening, and they're included. So, it, But if, let's say, we had a Syrah one night, and you you uh, prefer the Pinot Noir from two nights ago, you'll ask for it, and we and we gladly put a bottle on your table or serve it. You know, all the wines, all the beers are included, um, so all the sightseeing included. It is a, it's a wonderful travel And, of experience. course, in Germany, some unscheduled beer stops. We have some great beer stops in Germany. <laughs> you know what's fun, Peter? In the Christmas markets, yeah. do all the hot spice And By the wines. way, if you've never done a Christmas market in Germany, you need to do it. 
You're and the only thing that makes me mad, the only thing that makes me mad about doing those Christmas markets is you can't bring back the cheese. You know, <laughs> you just can't. I mean, you'll stink up the plane, but you can't, and, and it's not a good idea. Well, what people do is they, you know, each market has a unique mug yeah. that you get your glue wine in. People bring the mugs back to the ship. Right. Well, on a seven-night cruise, you might do a 12 different markets. Well, they have 12 different mugs. But the clients have no way, they don't think in advance, how am I going to bring these home? So they leave them all in their cabins. But as you know, they're a great little trinket. I brought one home. My wife said, oh, you should have brought more of these. I didn't tell her. I left literally probably a dozen in my cabin. Now, you see, I always bring back an extra bag. I know, I know it's going to happen. But you know what? I have, no, I, I have a rule now. And this is, this is why I love river cruising because they haven't really caught up with the rest of the, I'll use the word, crap of other destinations. Right. My definition of where I want to go, three words, no gift shop. If it's got a gift shop, I don't want to go. I've run out of space for refrigerator magnets. I've run out of spaces for mugs. I've run out of spaces for, you know, uh, tea towels, you know. And any time I go to a place that doesn't have a, a gift, gift shop, I go, now we're in the community. Well, what's really nice, Peter, is when you show up at a town or, or a city with 160 people, they go around their day-to-day life as if you weren't there at all. Right. If you're coming in on a, a ship with 5,000 people, the town you prepares. You are there, right? Yeah. You're. They put up the shops. They do all this. They get ready. Here they come. And that's the nice part of river cruising. You sort of just blend in. <laughs> you sneak in, <laughs> and yet there are three people there with mug craziness, and they're still going to do the mugs. That's right. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. You know, I'm always trying to figure out what's going on in the world of travel. That's my job. But you can talk about it from a consumer point of view, from a travel provider point of view. But now let's talk about it from a transactional point of view. And joining me now, President and Chief Operating Officer of Bon Voyage Travel in Tucson, Arizona, Ryan Hansen. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. And I always like to get a frontline report. Uh, And I've been doing this throughout the show, by the way. You know, here we are coming into an election year. We're seeing some indications of a possible recession next year. We know historically, if we, if we track the patterns, election years always carry with them uncertainty, fear, a little trepidation about you know leaving the country, no matter who's running. It, it's not party particular, right? We saw it with Brexit, and we saw it in 2008, 2012, and 2016. Why wouldn't we see it this coming year? What are you seeing? We're seeing that travel right now, 2018 and 2019, was really off the charts. Yeah, you guys were hot. Uh, Hot, yeah. Everybody wanted to get out uh, of the country and see something special, something immersive. But 2020, I think we are seeing what you are seeing, an expectation of just uncertainty. And that's the biggest word. The customers that we talk to aren't necessarily fearful of what could happen if they leave the country. Oh, it's It's not about that. Yeah, it's just more of what is going to happen with the economy. It's what's going to happen with their jobs, their stock portfolios, which, you know, as much as you'd like to say that travel is necessary to your living, it's dispendable income. Well, so it, you know it's what? Disposable. You can actually connect the dots between a strong stock market and luxury travel spend. Oh, no doubt, because, uh, you know, if you don't have to go on a vacation. You don't have to go on two vacations. Yeah, but I, have, I get down even deeper on that. I talk to the guys who run the luxury cruise lines, mm-hmm. and they can tell you to the minute, if the market goes up 300 points, their bookings go up. Yeah, people are confident. And these are high-ticket items. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, our average transaction in, in the luxury space is twelve to $15,000 on the cruise side of things. And, and when you're confident in the dollar, you're confident that it's going to be there for you tomorrow, you do want to 
enjoy the spoils of your work, but boy, if there's any hesitation and that stock market changes, we see that immediately as well, just like the supplier partners. The other thing that I'm seeing, and I saw this uh, back in 2008, 2009, when we also had an economic crisis, Mm -hmm. is more and more multi-generational travel because people think, wow, you know, the world's coming to an end. We better all go together. Right. And so there could be the other side of the coin of we better enjoy this time. We better have something memorable. Uh, And that speaks to a broader nature of how travel is trending. And we can talk to to that where it's more about experiences. But it's the grandparents that, you know, hey, use it or lose it. And they're paying for it. And they surely are. And it's not just their kids and the grandkids. It's it's a wide variety of travel and something immersive, something spectacular that they want to be able to afford to their kids and grandkids. So you mentioned the you know the, the, the key word these days is immersive. Last year it was sustainable. The year before that it was you know ecotourism, whatever. What does immersive mean? How physically active are these? Well, and that's maybe a little bit of a misnomer. Immersive doesn't necessarily mean physically grueling or right. something I have to to climb a sheer rock face. It's getting off the beaten path, not just going to the Spanish Steps in Rome that everybody's going to. And by the way, if you go to the Spanish Steps in Rome now and you sit down, you're fine. You're fine, right? You are fine. Yeah, they're really taking the buzzword of over-tourism, which is another buzzword in the industry, to a penalty and a punitive phase. In Florence, if you eat on the street, you're fine. They were actually thinking about putting turnstiles in St. Mark's Square in Venice. That's right. So I mean, getting off that yeah. beaten path is really when but we talk about But isn't that part of your job at this point to say to these guys, don't go to point A, you're going to be disappointed. The bridge of size is the bridge of thighs. Move over and go somewhere else. That's right. Find a find a little Italian bistro to sit in and, and, and eat uh, after hours. Go to Venice during a low peak season. Don't go during the summer. Yeah. Don't go during August when all of the Italians are on vacation and there as well. So that's where our expertise at the agency level comes into play is, is getting answering those questions you don't even know to ask as a consumer. You just want to see something special. Okay, let's be stupid here. What's the one question they don't ask you? Uh, the one question they don't ask, uh, they always ask budget. They always want to, They always want well, we, price, uh, that's right? Expected, so right. that's that's expected. Uh, I think they don't ask you, am I getting value? It's always about the bottom line dollar. They don't understand that sometimes you do spend more, but the value you Listen, get is Listen, I have to educate people on both sides of the fence, the people I work for and the people who work for me, that it's not how much it costs, it's how much it's worth. There you go. And it's only worth how much somebody's willing to spend for it, but it really is what did you get out of it? And some of those things aren't tangible. You talked about multi-generational trips. You can't put a price tag on the smile on your 12-year-old's face when he's in St. Petersburg and he's in Russia for the first time and seeing something that maybe the grandparents, obviously, as a 12-year-old would never have been able to do. But the problem is what's putting the smile on his face is seeing McDonald's. That we have, <laughs> now we have to talk. We have to break down that barrier, right? <laughs> that is a rule, cardinal rule for my families. You can't eat in a restaurant on in a foreign country that you can eat at in your own town. And do you enforce that rule? Absolutely. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.